Hello, my name is Pauline, and I'm a volunteer here at the Recovery Radio Network. Did you know that Recovery Radio uses more than 500 gigabytes of bandwidth every month, providing solutions to the recovery community? This is expensive, and we need your help in paying for it. Please become part of the solution yourself and donate to Recovery Radio. My name is Blanche, and I am a usually grateful recovering Al-Anon. I have been in reluctant recovery, actually, since July 7, 1964. And I never say that without adding that that makes me a survivor, not a savior. I need to remember that for myself. I uh I did this exact same day here five years ago. How many of you were here then? Oh, well, India, you're the only one I'll be repeating to. How many of you have never heard my story and never heard a tape of it? Could I see your hands? All right. You just don't know how much better that makes me feel because I always think everyone in East Texas knows every thought I've ever had. And when people presume to... uh, do workshops where I'm present. I like to know a little bit about where they're coming from. So very quickly, I'm going to just fill you in on facts. If you go to the East Texas Assembly in June, I am uh, going to tell my story there. And um, if you have any interest, you can come then. It's in San Antonio. I was born and grew up in Florida. We were fourth generation by the time I was born. We were not tourists. I have grandnieces now who are seventh generation. Floridians, and uh, tourist was a bad word. Anytime I behaved in a manner my mother considered inappropriate, she would say, don't act like a tourist. (laughs) I had a very violent, alcoholic father. I was a badly battered child. My parents were divorced when I was eight. Two years later, my mother remarried. We had lived in Jacksonville up until that time, which is on the Georgia border, And then we moved to Pensacola, which is on the Alabama border. And if you don't know, you need to know that North Florida is very southern. And South Florida is very northern. I almost said Yankee. Northern. (laughs) And I could ride my bicycle over into Alabama. It was that close. And uh, it was just a very different kind of upbringing. Went to Baylor, got to Texas because I wanted to go to Baylor, and that's where it happened to be. I absolutely loved it. I still do. I was totally happy there, and I think I got a splendid education. I had to pay for it myself, and uh, that took some doing. We didn't have student loans back then. Um, But that's where I met my husband, Charles. My mother had told me that if I wanted to go to college in Texas, I would end up marrying a Texan. And she said, you'll spend the rest of your life out there because they don't transplant. (laughs) I told her I would not do any such thing, but I did, and they don't, and I have, you know. And so (laughs) Charles and I lived in uh, Corpus Christi a year and uh, San Antonio four years. Our babies were born in San Antonio. And then we moved to West Texas to his hometown, Odessa. Oh. <laughs> my mother used to call it Odesolate. <laughs> she thought I'd gone to the end of the world. And I never got used to the desolation and the sandstorms, but I absolutely love West Texas people. They are a breed apart. 
If you know them, you know what I mean. They don't know there's anything they can't do, so they do it, you know. And uh, I'm so grateful we were there when we got our sickest because uh, that's where we found you, and they are very enthusiastic and gung-ho people, and that's the kind of program we needed. Charles didn't drink at all when we married. I'd never seen him take a drink. I wouldn't date anyone who drank, which isn't too hard at Baylor. You know, it's kind of a Baptist convent. <laughs> we were blindsided by alcoholism. I certainly didn't see it coming. We have a son and a daughter. Um, they were in Alateen for 10 years each. I try never to talk without saying there'll be a special place in heaven for Alateen sponsors. God bless you, bless you, bless you. You helped undo some of the awful damage we did these kids. And uh, I had taught school before the babies were born. And then I, I guess I was home 11 or 12 years. I'm so glad I was able to be home with them when they were little. That's, that's not as easy to do now. Uh, I went back to teaching and I taught English at Permian High School. And uh, when I'm away from Texas, I don't name the school, but you all know what it is. And uh, I loved that too. And the kids, and they were tremendous enrichment in my life. And I don't let people criticize kids to me. I think I probably know more of them than you do. I've accumulated several thousand through the years. We can talk about kids if you want to, but I think... Uh, I think if I were going to work on changing something, I would change parents. But then that's another soapbox and another topic, okay? <laughs> Charles and I were divorced after 30 years of marriage and 16 years in recovery. Long story, inappropriate for me to go into now. But you know, if you love teaching, you do a great deal of counseling. So I thought I ought to get a piece of paper that said I could. So I began shopping around for graduate schools. And of course, because you had taught me that I deserved the best, I ended up at the longest, hardest one I could find, which was the University of Texas in Austin. It was three hours and a thesis to get a master's in counseling psychology. I said to my children, three years, do you know how old I'll be in three years if I go to graduate school? And my son said, how old will you be in three years if you don't? <laughs> well, no one had explained it to me like that before. I was by myself for 11 years. I was astonished to find that I liked living alone. I had no idea I would. Um, I always have to say this carefully. I am not young, and I have never been beautiful, but I like men a great deal. Uh, so sue me, you know. I even like the way their minds work. That'll tell you something. And there have always been a few men kind enough to care for me and I had uh, relationships during that time that I would not have missed for anything and I finally was hanging out with Bob Miller a great deal and if I were telling you my whole story I could tell you about his proposal but I will just tell you that we were married <laughs> December 7th 1991 we bought a house in February in Salado if you know where that is and uh Bob became ill in March, and in June we were told that his illness was terminal. And so for the next uh, year and a half, he was bedridden, and he died at December 28th, last 93, just, just over a year ago. I, uh, I've talked about this several times, just give me a minute. 
I want to tell you the day of his death because it has a lot to do with why I'm here. He said that morning, it's time for me to go. And I said, oh, I, don't, I don't want you to go, but if you, you have fought this long and hard. And if you're tired of fighting it, I understand. He had hepatitis B. And he said, uh, I don't want to leave you. And I said, of course, you won't ever leave me. I said, Bob, it's hard to say goodbye. And he said, there's only one thing worse. And I said, what is that? And he said, never to have said hello. And I have tried hard since then to say hello to as many of you as I can, every chance I get. My mother used to say, you can't make a new old friend. And I cherish my old friends. And I have some that have been friends since childhood. I hang on to people. But I do know that you never get an old friend if you don't say hello first. So I would urge you to do the same thing. Sadder than saying goodbye is never to have said hello. So please, before the day is over, I want you to say hello to each other. And I'm not just an English teacher. I have to explain, okay? (laughs) I don't just mean the word, but I mean... uh, I guess I mean availability. I guess I mean reaching out in friendship to other people. So that's pretty much who I am and where I'm coming from. And I didn't have time to tell you that, but it will give you some background because I will refer to these various people in my life and these stages in my life. And you won't know what I'm talking about if you didn't know at least that much. I'm not going to read to you. I have been to workshops on steps where people read the literature. I'm assuming you can do that for yourself. What I'm going to do is share my experience with you. Now, if yours has been different, that's fine. I never do this without someone coming up afterwards and saying, well, I just don't agree with you. And I think, how can you say that wasn't my experience? You know, (laughs) what's to disagree with here? But it happens every time. There are a great, great many ways to do the steps right, to do sponsorship right. There are many ways. There was a justice of the Supreme Court, Felix Frankfurter, years ago, who said um, there are a great many issues about which people of goodwill disagree. And it's all right if you disagree. I was married for 30 years. I spent 30 years working with teenagers, and I reared two kids of my own. I have been disagreed with. You know, I won't get upended if you disagree. But you can't argue that it was not my experience, because it has been. I think working these steps is a spiritual adventure. And I would be sorry if someone began it unguided and undirected. But that's that's this afternoon's workshop, so I won't get on that soapbox either right now. You can tell I have several. Another another one of them is literature. See, when I came into Alamon, we had one hardback book and ten pamphlets. And you do not know the blood and sweat and tears that has gone into our getting more literature. You have no idea how desperately we needed it and how hard and long we begged for it. And uh, there weren't as many of us then. When I was delegate, I was on the Literature Committee in New York, and that's another one of my favorite talks. I, uh, I know the program is in the literature. And when you hear someone talking, you hear someone talking about he or she uses the program. But that's not where you're going to get it if all you do is listen to other people. You're going to hear their experiences with the program. So I would urge you to use all the stuff in our literature that's on the steps. And then, of course, other people. 
because I would like very much to know if I'm about to take a trip, if you've been there, for you to tell me where the detours are, you know, where the construction is and what to look out for. It's, uh, it's been my experience. There are people who want to have the haves, but they don't want to do the do's, you know. And it's, um, it's not going to work that way. We have to do the do's before we can have what other people have that we so want. I was introduced to the steps by being told that steps one through three are surrender steps. And I heard what I thought were a lot of contradictions when I got into Al-Anon, and win by surrender was one of them. And I thought, no, that you win by fighting, everybody knows that. I'm not good at surrendering even now. There are two things, that traps that I fall into. One of them is saying to God, in effect, let me know your will for my life and I'll give it my serious consideration. That won't do it. And the other fallacy when it comes to surrendering is my attitude of, well, I don't surrender, I knuckle under. You know the difference? Well, you're bigger than I am. Okay, go ahead. Have your way. That won't do it either. And my first sponsor used to say over and over, surrender is joyous acceptance of God's will. Joyous acceptance. I was taught that steps four through nine would clear away the wreckage of the past. And I informed everyone who would listen that there was no wreckage in my past. Thank you. You could ask anybody. (laughs) Rather than trying to explain to me there's all kinds of wreckage, that you don't have to have red raw social sins, you know, they said, uh, my sponsor said, okay, how about steps four through nine will heal your memories? Can you buy that? And I could buy that. Today I have no trouble with wreckage, but then I did. And I was told that steps 10 through 12 were maintenance steps, and I was so glad to see it printed in our Courage to Change book that um, that doesn't mean you stay in the same place. It means you try not to lose any ground while you continue to grow. I have a theory totally unsubstantiated, but it's my belief that in Al-Anon, as in many things, you can't stand still. You either are growing or you're regressing. And I... I've done some regressing. I dare say you have too, and and I am aware of it, and I don't want to do it any more than I have to. Now, you already know that step 11 is our prayer meditation step. Most people do this in the morning, and I'll talk more about it when I get to it, but uh, I don't wake up very alert. I've been apologizing for that. You can be a good human being and wake up slowly. Really, you can. If you teach high school, you generally have one period a day uh, with no class. It's called by various names. At Permian High School, it was called your conference period. Mine was always the first period because my principal said, I have seen you groping your way into the building too many times. I would not expose any kids to you at that hour. So I said to my sponsor, I can't, that's not, that's not my best time to do prayer meditation. And she said, okay, before your feet hit the floor in the morning, I want you to do the first three steps. And I haven't done anything else in this program perfectly, but I've done that. I haven't missed many mornings, only in times of extreme illness. And sometimes I'm so groggy, I use the Alateen version, you know. I can't, he can, I think I'll let him. But I promise you, if you want to wait a while on the prayer meditation. Now, I have... a. I have traveled with Al-Anon to service functions, and they wake up not only 
alert but spiritual, you know? And I don't believe in God till 10 o'clock. We just made it. <laughs> I don't think anything worthwhile ever happened before noon. And I used to tell my students, if I could teach you from 10 at night till 2 in the morning, I would be brilliant and profound and charming. And they would say, we wouldn't. <laughs> but that, we have different biorhythms, and that's how mine work. So I do those first three steps, first thing, every day. Starting with number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. I like the word we. From the very first, we're told that we're not alone, and we don't have to do this by ourselves. And most of us had felt so alone for so long when we finally got here. I think uh, this step was written, I certainly can't say more for Al-Anon than for other people in 12-step programs, but certainly for us because I believe it's hard for us to admit powerlessness so many years, so many of us felt that we had control over whether the alcoholic drank or not. If I do this, he won't drink. If I do this, he won't drink. That's assuming just a tremendous lot of power. But you see, either I had to feel guilty when he did drink, or I had to admit I was powerless over it. And I would rather feel guilt than powerlessness. Did that make sense? I think it's just a really vital point. And to this day, most of us assume inappropriate guilt. I feel guilty for earthquakes in Peru and the assassination of public figures. I mean, I, I go through life, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it was not trusting. I knew inside I didn't feel bossy. I felt scared. And if I was in control, at least I didn't have to trust anyone else to do it. Always in doing these steps for the first time, when I was able to verbalize my concerns to my sponsor, she could resolve some of the conflicts. And when I talked to her about this, she said, you're, you're hearing it as if it were helpless. It doesn't say you're helpless. It says the power isn't coming from you. And she pointed out that in the very next step, we are told what the source of the power is. That The first step just says we're not the source. When I married Bob Miller, he had in his kitchen at his house a poster that said, there are two fundamental spiritual truths. One, there is a God. Two, you ain't him. <laughs> it's still in our garage. I don't, I don't want to get rid of it. and It's old and ragged now. And I was, I suppose, forgetting what the source of the power was. I was accustomed to managing, so it was hard for me to think of my life as being uncontrollable. I know now that we are not powerless to hurt other people. I wish we were, but we're not. And we're not powerless to help them, thank God. We are powerless to change them. I decided some years ago there's no such thing as constructive criticism. It never constructed anything at my house, anyway. I think when I'm being criticized, I feel as if you're shining a bright light in my eyes and I can't see anything. I can hear the truth in love from someone who is able to say to me, Blanche, I don't believe it's in your best interest for you to... I can hear that. But I can't hear, I choose not to hear, I guess, harsh criticism, and I try never to give it. An Al-Anon friend asked me just a few days ago, you've told me a lot of my strengths. What are some things that are not my strengths? And I said, the people who don't love you will tell you those. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to do that. That's my personal opinion. You're free to... Use whatever works for you. But I know that when I am miserable, I am not working step one. I am somehow trying once again to manage somebody else's life, at least mentally. 
You know, I wish he wouldn't. Or, well, if I were in her place, I wouldn't do, you know, you know how that goes. I'm trying to run the life. I believe if we have trouble with any step, we didn't work the one before it adequately. And I think it takes a little longer than I originally thought to do each of these. When I go through these with people with whom I work, I, I notice they're thinking they have mastered it before I think they have. But assuming we have accepted step one, step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The word sanity really bothered me. I don't think it bothers people as much now, but 30 years ago, no one knew the whole family got sick. Nobody knew that. And I was insulted. I mean, no one was going to drop a net over me and cart me off to a hospital, you know? But I know something about words. And I know the word sanity comes from the Latin word sanus, which means whole. Um, healthy, uh, sanitary comes from the same root word. And when I realized that, it didn't bother me quite so much. Uh, the Alateens in West Texas used to say about this step, he will restore us to right thinking. And I could hear that one. I had been uh, tested by, my husband would never go to a counselor, but I certainly would, and I had been tested and I was told I was just terribly healthy. That was before I got to you. Of course, they didn't know to test for what you later pointed out to me in love but <laughs> I I'm not bothered at all today by the thought of having been insane because if you use the definition of inappropriate reactions I certainly had them and uh, then it just ripped me apart so I was glad I knew more about what the word meant we have had in Al-Anon much like primitive tribes have an oral history, an oral teaching that we pass on to each other. And as we have had more and more books published, a lot of these teachings have finally shown up in print. And it pleases me because I'm able to say to people, our literature says, instead of I say, or I've heard. Now that's true of step two in that from the very first I was taught, first we came. And for some of us that was our biggest hurdle. And then we came to, it's as if we had been spiritually asleep, unconscious, and we came to, and then we came to believe, and this is in our Courage to Change book, and I was so glad to see it. They have quite a few things that I had heard and had never seen written. Uh, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got, that one. And now, uh, oh, there, there are several that's in there. I had a lot of reasons for my reluctance here. Let me reiterate that this is a trust step, and there's a difference in belief and trust. The uh, best example I know is to say that I believe that certain people hold political office at various levels of our government. I believe they exist. I believe they have tremendous power. That doesn't mean I trust them. You, you can hear that. This has been my attitude toward God more times than I wish. I have never, never not believed in God. I have never not believed that he is all-powerful. I just don't always trust him. And that's the strangest thing because he has a wonderful track record in my life. All I have to do is look back and see when I have let go the things that have happened. And you'd think I would do it easily, but I don't. I don't do it easily. What I do is find that I can have trust in your trust. I can hang on to your faith sometimes when my own is weak. And when mine is strong, you may hang on to it. Mine is always strong about you. 
I believe that God has so many neat things in store for you. I really do. And I know that he has tremendous recovery waiting for you. I just can't always believe it for me. But I'm well enough today to say to somebody, tell me again. (laughs) And they will. They'll tell me again. I have some things I want you to do after I have touched on each step. So I'm touching on them very briefly. That's okay. The mind can absorb what the seat can endure. And I know you'll get tired of sitting. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I was accustomed to making decisions. I had told this man to whom I was married what to wear, what to say, when to breathe, you know, for years. I could make decisions. And I found that I could turn my life over because that implied guidance and protection. But I wasn't so sure about turning my will over. That was something else altogether. And I know today that I have to want his will more than I want anything else. Most of the time I can do that. Sometimes I still think I know what's best for me or for someone else. And that's when I have to practice the prayer of relinquishment. Take my hands off. I learned as much from my husband Charles' sponsor as I did from my own in those early years. She was a beautiful red-haired woman. And she would say to me, At some point in your life, you're going to have to be willing to give up everything. But she says it's much like Abraham and Isaac in the scriptures. God wants your willingness. You aren't going to have to give up everything. But you truly have to be willing to. And I haven't had to give up everything, but at some point I've had to be willing to. And of course, sometimes I've had to give up the person or the place or the situation. I told you I had trouble with surrender, and this step is really, really about surrender. But I have found that this step is where I ask for a God-centered life. And he believed me, and he has systematically and thoroughly removed anything else I have put in the center these last 30 years. I don't mean he has struck people dead. I'm not implying that. I don't think God does that. I just mean circumstances come about so that whatever I have put in his place is taken out of my life. I'm very glad that we are allowed God as we understand him, not filtered through any denomination or preacher or book. I'm glad for a lot of reasons, but also because we are a worldwide fellowship and we have people of all sorts of faiths. My daughter has just moved to, uh, she's a journalist, she just moved to Washington, D.C. I went up to spend Christmas with her. And on Christmas Day, she has a friend who works for USA Today. And uh, this friend was having an open house, so we went. And, you know, you embarrass your children by being in the same room with them, you know. (laughs) And this kid doesn't know who I am. She's totally unimpressed. (laughs) And, of course, if I ever say the wrong thing, it's around her, always. She is so proper. Oh, my. I was sitting in front of the fireplace and chatting with other guests and an absolutely gorgeous family came in, a husband, wife, and a little girl about four and a baby. And they were introduced to all of us and the little girl's name was Hannah. And I said to her, it was Christmas Day, and I said, "Uh, did Santa Claus leave a lot of presents under your tree this morning? And she said, no. And her mother said very graciously, we celebrate Hanukkah. And I thought, oh, Lord, open foot, insert mouth, you know. (laughs) So I was telling my daughter on the way home, I'm sorry, I embarrassed you again. And she's, you know, weller too. English teachers are allowed to make up their own words. 
It's, a, it's in our contract. I can say Weller if I want to. She said, Mother, all that little girl's life, she's going to have to explain that to people. And it didn't hurt for her mother to explain it today. But I thought then how many, many, many paths there are to God. And I am really scared by people who think they have the only answer. A little envious maybe, but I'm certainly scared. So we are allowed God as we understand him. And I understand him a little better all along. If I live another 30 years, I think my understanding of him will be a great deal better than it is today. It's certainly better today than it was 30 years ago. The fourth step says, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I put this one off. It is not life or death for Al-Anons. We won't die. We won't end up in jail or a hospital. And it's easy for us to put it off. We've gained some relief through the first three steps. And we're afraid that further insight will be painful. I thought I had a, enough self-hatred that if I, and if I did this, I wouldn't be able to tolerate myself. And I was told, no, self-knowledge ends in self-acceptance. It doesn't end in self-condemnation. That it was not shattering that we never, never see more than we can handle. I believe that. I had done a great deal of reading before I got to you trying to find some answer to our crazy lives. And one of the biggies in psychology, Karen Horney, has a book called Self-Analysis. And our Policy Digest says we can make brief allusions to other books. Brief. One sentence. And she says, uh, when she's working with someone in psychoanalysis, she says that you don't uh, show the person what the problem is you wait till he can see it and he won't see more than he can handle so I knew that and I got to you and you said God won't reveal to you more than you can handle this is why at least my first 18 years in Al-Anon you never thought you were finished with the steps when you finished you started over because you were able to see a little bit more each time God could reveal to you a little bit more I told you, the weller we get, the weller we can get. We have more recovery with which to grasp more recovery. So uh, I need not have been so afraid of it. It says fearless, and I do think it takes some emotional courage to take this look within. And it says searching, and I believe that means we have to really dig and get to the bottom of things. Our book, unlike that of our friends in AA, our book gives us several methods of doing a fourth step. We didn't have that book when I was first doing mine. Uh, When uh, the AA 12 and 12 was written, Bill Wilson said it would serve both fellowships for a long time, and it did. It had to. But we finally got our own 12 and 12, and at that time, Linda McFadden was our staff writer in New York. And there were a great many of us who wrote to her and suggested that we be allowed more than one way of doing step four. I was told the first time I did it and it's what I've used ever since with people whom I sponsor that there are several reasons to do a life story now this doesn't mean a dissertation unless you're an English teacher you don't have to write a thesis sentence with supporting evidence in every paragraph you can just do an outline with one or two words you know and uh, so that is included in our 12 and 12 as one of the ways that we can do a step four. And the reason I urge it on the people I sponsor is because you are able to see two things that I think it's hard for Al-Anons to see. 
One is I had every defect of character before I ever married Charles. They weren't due to living with an alcoholic. I brought every one of them into my marriage. These defects were what caused me to make a sick, inappropriate marriage in the first place. And they would have caused me trouble in any marriage. And I needed to know that. And the second reason for a life story is that you can see patterns of behavior. I know that under stress, I get terribly busy. Frantically busy. I use it as a narcotic. You don't have to think or feel if you never slow down. That's one of the patterns I saw. There were a dozen. But that's one of them. So this is why I use it. This has been my experience. There are other ways that are equally valid, okay? (laughs) And if that's what works for you, you have at it. This is the one I like, and it's the one that works for me. I have, uh, am currently working with a woman who is not new, but her sponsor moved away. And she uh, is dyslexic, and it's hard for her to write. And so what I'm going to do, and trust that it's okay, you know, you never know. I never know for sure if I'm breaking traditions. But I'm working on an outline for her so that all she has to do is fill it in. Because she cannot write long sentences and paragraphs. And she's an extremely bright woman, as are most dyslexics. The students I've had certainly were. And uh, we can do hers more orally than written than most of the people. I'm trying to say, I think, in doing a fourth step, circumstances alter the... This is the end of side one. Turn your cassette over and continue to play on the other side. Thank you. adapt and it's not easy for me to be adaptable I tend to think there's one answer you know and you hang on to it I often say that I have worked my way up to flexible but I'll never make frivolous I just uh, am grateful to be able to be to be flexible here I think when I had my whipping boy removed see next to an alcoholic anybody looks good And any defect I had, people could say, well, you know how her husband drinks. I mean, really. And I still excuse people. We were doing that, bitch. We have a friend whose spouse is still drinking, and we were saying, but, you know. And uh, I counted on that when I had a drinking spouse. And now I was told that I was responsible for my behavior and that I didn't want to hear that. It had been so neat to blame it on somebody else, you know. But as I said, I learned I'd had these all my life. Thousands of years ago, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. We have an American poet, Phyllis McGinley, who says the unlived life is not worth examining. (laughs) I'm hurrying. I'll, I'll come back and tell you other things another time. But get help with this. I believe in doing every step with your sponsor. And I believe other people can see us more clearly than we can see ourselves. And I was able, I have some people in my life to whom I'm able to say, do you experience me as an angry person, for instance? They always say yes. They just, I think I'm so sweet. (laughs) That's not the word I'd use for me, but I don't experience myself 
as having a lot of anger still, but a lot of people can see that. And I need to know what they see. They see me better than I do. But I'm careful from whom I ask this. You know, our literature says don't go to the hardware store for bread. Don't go to people who are going to abuse you and ask for truth and affirmations. But I have people who are like a reality computer. You know, I can ask and they come out with the truth. So I believe in getting help with your inventory. That works for me. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, if four through nine are for clearing up the wreckage of the past, then we're told that self-knowledge alone isn't enough. We have to do something. This is, uh, this is not my basic nature. What I do when faced with any challenge. My husband, Bob, said this is why he didn't give me but five weeks to get ready for a wedding. If he'd given me any longer, he knows what I do. I read 10 or 12 books on it, whatever it is. I talk to 10 or 12 people. I write extensively in my journal. Then I think I've done something about it. (laughs) Nothing changes until there's some action. I I know that up here, but I still, that's my pattern. And so this is the step where we have to go into action. We confess to ourselves for insight, of course, for self-knowledge. And we confess to God for forgiveness, and he does. I believe that once we ask for forgiveness, if we ask a thousand times, he doesn't hear us the last 999 because he already did. I think he wonders what in the world we're babbling about. You know, (laughs) that's that's long over with with him. And we confess to other people for humility, for healing. I grew up Southern Baptist and I can outquote anyone I know on scripture, which happens. My husband Bob was an ardent Episcopalian. Now, forgive me, I didn't know there were any ardent ones, but he is. Um, He was. I think the Episcopalians are rather aerobic, you know. Stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand. But (laughs) we were married in the Episcopal Church, and I went with him to the Episcopal Church, and the minister is still a good friend. He comes to see me, and I say, George, I'm not even a member of your church. And he says, that's why I come. He says it's a stained glass jungle out there. (laughs) But I would quote scripture to Bob. And he didn't know any scripture. (laughs) So he would tell me how many bishops he knew. (laughs) One day he was saying how good it felt to laugh. This is when he was sick. And I quoted, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. And he looked at me and said, I know Bishop Benitez and I know Bishop Baker and I know... (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, I don't know how I got off on that. Oh, I know. As a little girl learning these scriptures, I was taught, and some of you were, the scripture in the book of James that says, uh, confess your sins one to another. And I was in Elanon before I realized, I remembered the rest of the verse. And it says that you may be healed. And I thought, well, of course. You know, this is a very basic teaching. Eleanor never claims to have invented any of these principles. I think it's important that we know who we are. I would urge you to choose the right person with whom to share this knowledge. I prefer someone in the program. Now, you have a privilege of doing it with anyone you want to. But I find that someone who has never done a fifth step isn't the one I want to hear mine. Uh, I know that our friends in AA 
I won't say they're urged to, but it, it is acceptable that they do it with someone professional. And I have been told that the thinking is that the person with whom they take it, if he gets drunk and tells it all, it will be sort of sad. So they uh, they are more likely than we are to do it with someone outside the program. I think usually you do it with your sponsor because it's important that one person on earth know everything about you. But at least you do it with someone you trust. The listener is also involved in a fifth step. It's a mutual fifth step. Bob always said, I, I can't do that Saturday. I'm sharing a fifth step with. He never said, I'm hearing someone's fifth step. I know that I learn a lot about me. I have heard many, 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 many fifth steps. Um, far more than, I mean, I don't sponsor, but a few lucky people. But <laughs> I, I hear a lot of fifth steps. And I learn a lot about me. And one of the examples I can give you. See, I have heard, and if you hear a lot of them, you'll hear it too, of course, adultery and incest and one embezzlement, one accessory to murder. But the woman that made me come up out of my chair with blood in my eyes, the one who told me she cheated her way through school. Now, I thought, I will throw her out of my house. And you know how part of you stands off and watches, and I thought, what does this tell you about your values? Well, those are still my values, but she had no inkling. I really think she didn't. You know, I didn't flicker a muscle, but I sure learned a lot about me. And let me tell you, there's no original sin. Anything you've done has been done. And more. You remember the movie, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter? They've been in the motel the first time to make love, and when they're leaving, she's just mortified, and the young man is just ten feet tall and strutting down the street, and he turns to her to comfort her. And what he says is, well, hell, we didn't invent nothing. (laughs) Well, I promise you, you haven't invented anything. I will say that I never had sponsored a dual member until I got to Austin. And that comes up more this afternoon. But uh, that certainly makes for more interesting fifth steps than I had heard up until then. I can tell you. Six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. This was the hardest one for me. Everyone has a step that's the stumbling one. This one is for me. It calls for total surrender again. And there are those, those words that trip you up. I could get partway ready for him to remove some of them, but we're told entirely ready and all of them. And I, I need to remember that God has to remove them and not us. That we cannot. We would if we could, but we cannot. And I don't. Um, I don't always know whether it's a defect. When I hear someone's fifth step, I make a list of things that he might want to ask God to remove that I hear as we talk. And what I, ha- I suggest that this person do, this works for me, is to go over it and say uh, to himself. What was the payoff here? Why did I hang on to this for so long? See, I hung on to my defects, and I still do to some of them, because there is a reward. When I had a temper tantrum, people walked on eggshells for a while. I could control with anger. So first you need to know what the payoff is. Why did you keep it? And then, how has it become a problem to you? Because you won't ask God to remove it if it hasn't become a problem. And this... uh, 
This gives me pause because so many defects are just a good thing carried to extremes. It's all right, I think, to love beautiful things. I think greed is a defect. You see what I mean? So, uh, that's another one of those very fine lines. I was afraid that when I did all of this self-searching, I would turn into a moral hypochondriac. You know how hypochondriacs look for physical symptoms all the time? I was afraid I'd wake up every morning and think, where am I wicked and evil today? And you know it doesn't work that way. It's sort of like driving a car and you aren't aware that you're even listening, but when the engine gets a knock in it, you hear it. And you're aware that at some level you were hearing it all along. This is, this is important for me to remember that I'm not going to become a moral hypochondriac. I know that uh, if I supply the willingness, God will supply the power. Step seven says, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. This is, of course, the humility step. And I think a lot of people think that word means humiliation. It does not. Humiliation is the feeling of being debased and degraded. And there's nothing worthwhile or good about humiliation. Humility is what I feel when I talk at a convention and I have a standing ovation. That's a feeling. You know, you know the difference. It's important.